I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, and if you don't have a Bible, we have one that we could uh, offer to (laughs) give to somebody, so first person to put up their hand gets it. (laughs) So we're going to open our Bibles to Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1 through 5, and then we're going to jump down to verse 46 after that, so follow along with me as I read, hear the word of the Lord. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manion, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Move to verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off their dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Praise be to God. Well, good morning, family. Great to see you from this perspective. Usually I see the backs of most of your heads, I think, depending on where it is I'm sitting. Nice to see your smiling faces. Oh, that was sort of a stab at humor. It fell flat. (laughs) Uh, I can tell you not everything that you say in the pulpit that you think is going to go over and be well-received is well-received. We actually talked about that at a wedding because uh, Cam was at a wedding and I said, isn't it amazing how the crowd makes a difference? in terms of how humor and how response and how things go. So I'm anticipating that you'll actually be with me and not against me this morning. Uh, We do have a large and ambitious uh, focus this morning. It's the first missionary journey recorded in the book of Acts. When Barnabas and Paul, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, are set aside and they travel from where they are in Antioch down into Cyprus, the island, and then make a swing up into what is now southern Turkey, and established churches in key cities and key points up the uh, Lycius Valley and uh, other areas of uh, that region, which is typically called um, Asia Minor um, in, in terms of history books. But I want you to know as we start that the reason this happens and it's recorded in the book of Acts is because we serve a missionary God. We serve a God who says, my eternity will not be as I've designed it unless I have more of my creation with me. Not only as we've been singing, will he restore, but he's in the process of restoration now through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It is his desire to see more of broken humanity, understand who they are uh, in terms of their creation, and then the restoration and reconciliation through the death of God's only son, Jesus Christ. And so he cares about us. We are the result of God being the missionary God. Church of the city, 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, is an outwork, a growth, or a fruit that our God is the missionary God. Let me just focus one more time in prayer with you, and then we'll launch into these two chapters and consider patterns and themes of missions. God, thank you that you are the author and finisher of faith, that you're also the one who inspired and gave us your word. We're grateful that you're a God who speaks and that we can inquire after you, that you don't change your mind, you're not capricious one day one thing, one day another, but you're consistent and true and faithful. And so I pray that the words of my mouth as I seek to teach and the meditation of all our heart today will glorify you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So what does God really expect uh, of each one of us as part of Church of the City? When we talk about God being the missionary God, the question is, what's my role in it? What am I supposed to be doing? How is it that I respond when I hear something that says God cares about lost people? Is it to sit back and go, oh, I'm really glad to know that? (sighs) Doesn't concern me. Or is it really to understand that one of the demonstrations of our being an alliance and allegiance with God is that what matters to him matters to me? Because the call in the book of Acts is that we're to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to demonstrate in real time, in real place with individuals around us that the gospel of Jesus Christ really works. Because do you know that most people in North America will not consider what it is that you say unless they really know it works in you? They don't want to be sold something that sounds great. They want to be shown and demonstrated that the great thing that you're talking about actually works and is demonstrated in their lives. And that's why Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and you will be my what? We've been studying the book of Acts, so we should know that. You are going to be my witnesses. You are going to showcase in your life, not only proclaim the words out of your mouth, but you are going to be a a living example of what the gospel of Jesus Christ does in the lives of people. I remember Tim Keller one time saying, people are so critical of the church. Now, they have cause to be critical of the church at times. Would you agree? Sometimes we can get way off tangent. But they're often critical of the church and they look at the church and they define it as being less than it needs to be. And here's Keller's great line. You should have seen us yesterday. You have no idea where God has taken us from and what it is that he's doing in us now. If you knew the backstory of who we used to be and now you see the front story of who we are, you would be giving praise to God because the gospel of Jesus Christ really changes us. Is that true? If you know that to be true, that's all that is needed for you to be qualified as a witness. I once was lost, now I'm found. I once was blind, now I see. I once was a wreck, and now I am a recreated wreck. I'm in process, 
God is changing me. And that's what we testify. Our God is the missionary God. So what does God expect of me? He expects that you are going to be on journey with him, not only growing personally in maturity, but you are going to be walking by faith with him so that people see the gospel of Jesus Christ at work in you. Now that means one of two things. Either it's terrifying to you because people are really going to be looking at you and therefore you pull back and you withdraw and you create screens and barriers and veils so that people don't have to see you when you're not living up to the measure of what you need to be or it absolutely delights you because you realize you're a showcase, a living letter, someone who demonstrates that God is at work in you today. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. That's what we're joining in missional communities so that we continue to ramp up and mature and develop what it is that God has made us so that we can be more effective individually and collectively in this witnessing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, while God expects all of us to be on mission with him where we live, work, and play, in some places in God's word, we recognize that there are patterns or plans of how it is that we can engage with others in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these two chapters are one of those places we see a plan and a pattern. We see that God acts, sets certain people apart, and then we follow the narrative of how it is that those things are worked out. So as you serve the Lord, one of the interesting things in verses 1 to 3 of Acts chapter 13 is as you serve the Lord that you will receive direction from the Lord. Because most of us think uh, when we read these few verses that these five men, uh, interesting names, aren't they, in, in uh, the book of Acts, these real people in real time are gathering and leading the church in Antioch. And uh, when they're doing that, they have this sense that God is saying to them, you should take Barnabas and Saul or Paul and set them aside for the work that I have for them. That's what it says in verse two. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting and praying. Now, one of the interesting things about this word worship is it doesn't mean what we normally think it means. In other words, worship often is a word that describes what we're doing today. We're gathering, we're, a part of, we're setting apart the routine of life, uh, we're focused particularly on Christ, and we're adoring him in music, and we're thinking about him in prayer, and we're offering petitions, and we're listening to his word, and all of those things. But the word for worship here is a different Greek word. It's the word that usually means what a priest does when he's serving God in a holy context. Now think about that. Because what does a priest usually do? He's usually offering a sacrifice or he's leading in liturgy. Actually, that's the word in English that comes from the Greek root, liturgical. Logicane latrine are the actual Greek words. That sounds fancy. Sometimes we parade those words just to impress you that we really know a thing or two. But logicane latrine, logical, latrine liturgy, the logical outworking of my devotion to God. So people who are devoted as priests, we know have a certain kind of function serving in the temple of their God. Know that in the Old Testament, had to wear certain clothes, had to do certain things, it was very ritualistic, you had to go through that entire process, you couldn't do it unless you were completely bathed and garbed and you had all the ceremony all attached, so we get that. But then Paul takes this word in Romans chapter 12 and he says, I beseech you, I, I actually beg you brothers that you consider that it is your logicane latrine to present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. So now suddenly we realize Paul is not talking about 
worship as something that happens on unique and special days with all of this rigorous ceremonial preparation. He's talking about what I do every day, all day, to the glory of God, demonstrating what? The gospel of Jesus transforms who I am physically and what I do with this body. Think about it. What you do and what you don't do reference the gospel. Would you agree with that? Do you think your behavior actually shows your identity? It does. Absolutely, it does, concretely. And, And if you behave in a way that's independent of what you think, one of two things will happen. Either you'll change your behavior to match your belief, or you'll change your beliefs to match your behavior. Because you cannot live inconsistently. You cannot live incongruently. So when Paul says... These guys were gathering, and it was their logic and latrine, their reasonable worship, their liturgy, their practice. What does he really mean? I think what it means is they were doing business as the five leaders of the church in Antioch, and they got impression in prayer and conversation that God was going to do something. Now, what would happen in this church? We wouldn't like to think about this, because we like things to be the way they are. But it would be Matt saying, you know what? I just have this burden for places that don't have the gospel to have more places where the gospel's known. Would that be something Matt would say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. James would go, yeah, Matt says that. I know because Matt says that to me. Matt says that to us on Sunday mornings. He's, He's got that burden. So as a person has that burden and he talks about it and they're praying about it and they're fasting as they're going about their ministry because they're teaching and they're preaching and they're visiting and they're marrying and they're burying and they're doing all the kinds of things they need to do as leaders within this church, they have a sense that God is doing something amongst them. And so they say to themselves, Paul, do you have any sense that the gospel of Jesus should go beyond Antioch? And Paul would say... Yes, I've been talking about that for the whole year. Yeah, we think that too. And this is what our sense is. So what am I saying to you? Sometimes we have a belief when we read this in narrative that it has to happen in this very sort of holy upper room experience. Maybe it did. But there are many scholars, and I lean with them, that says it happened in the flow of ministry that God was talking to them and saying, this is really what I want for Barnabas and Paul. I want them to go and preach the gospel where it's never been preached and proclaimed before. And Paul said, I'm all in. So here's the takeaway. Don't expect God to tell you to do the next thing until you're doing this thing. Why would you expect God to tell you the next big thing you want to do if you're not doing the thing he's already asked you to do? In other words, if you want to know what God wants you to do next, serve God now. Does that make sense? Because God will direct you as you move and flow with his spirit. Why would you expect if you're stalled and stuck that God is suddenly going to go, Shazam! This is what I want for you. Electric lights, Hollywood announcements. Maybe not. But maybe, as we're in the rhythm of life serving God, and we're praying before him and telling him the burden of our heart, in time and place, God is going to say, go get it done. So Barnabas and Baal are serving the Lord. They're hearing his direction. 
So the obvious focus is that they're going to recreate on their mission journey what it is that they've experienced in Antioch. Because the question would come, they, 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 they decide to do this and they pray again and they fast again and they put their hands on them and they send them out. Where do they go? What's their plan? The world's wide. Of all the places they could go, it says that they decided to go to Cyprus. Why would they leave the mainland and go to the island? Well, if you do a little sleuthing and a little digging, you realize it makes so much sense. First of all, did you know that Barnabas was a Cypriot? He's from there. We know that way back in Acts chapter 4. His name used to be Joseph. And they changed his name from Joseph to Barnabas because he lived out his heart. He was a son of encouragement. He was always going, putting his hand on someone's back, saying an appropriate word, encouraging, developing, nurturing, pastoring. He was just brilliant at it. So they changed his name, called him Barnabas. But he was from Cyprus. Did you also know that there were a whole bunch of disciples from earlier chapter 11 that first went from Cyprus and decided not only to stay as a Jewish community, but they decided to share with their friends in the wider community. And for the first time in the life of the church, it wasn't just Jewish, it was Jewish Greek in one church. It was multi-ethnic. Wow. In the first chapters of, of, of Acts, we've got a multi-ethnic church really just expanding with Cypriot leaders. So when God says, go and do it, guess where the guys go, where they've got contacts, connections, friends, family, opportunities. So they set sail, they get down onto Cyprus. What's the first thing they do? Well, what we discover from this in the pattern is they start with the known in Acts chapter 13, verses four to 12. They find what we would call people groups, or they would find a silo. They would find a connection of people who have things in common. So they set sail and they go through all, it says in verse six, they travel the whole island. And where did they go in verse five? Early it says, when they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Now why would they go to a Jewish synagogue? Because they were, they were Jewish. And what happens in a synagogue? Well, not just what we think happens in a synagogue when you go to temple and they do the worship on a Friday night on Shabbat Shalom, but also when they go there, this is the community center. This is the center of Jewish identity. This is the place where women who have married into the community learn to cook. No kidding. They'll do that in a synagogue. Why? Because it's a place of cultural identity. So they went to the place of cultural identity and they said, have you heard about Jesus? And they said, what are you talking about? What is this teaching? And then on Shabbat, they said, you are a guest speaker. You've got the qualifications. Paul, you used to be the, sat at Gamaliel's feet. You've got some knowledge and understanding. And so the leader of the synagogue said, would you speak? And so he speaks. And what do you think he says? Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into this world to seek and to save that which is lost. I know it to be true, and I'm declaring to you from the prophets till now, Jesus is the Lord. And people went, wow. We had never heard this before. And some responded. And they went through the entire island visiting all of these synagogues. But not only in the synagogue would there be this group of individuals who were Jewish in background who would be interested in what was going on in Jerusalem, but also they would be some God-fearing people. Cornelius was one of those guys that we read in Acts chapter 10. God-fearing, a Roman centurion, a man of standing. 
And so already in the synagogue, in this mixed group of people, the gospel was fine. It's what's called a silo, a network, a community. And Paul began, and Barnabas with him, to work within this community. So they started with what was known. And they began in, listen to this in chapter 13, verse 46. If you have your Bibles open, you might want to look at that. In verse, uh, well, we'll set it in the context. In verse 44, on the next Sabbath, they've now actually left Cyprus, Cyprus and they're off on the mainland again. But on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Why? Why did they have to do it first? Any idea? Talk back to me. Why first? Why did the Jews? Yeah, yeah, the Jews were the people who had the book. The Jews were the people who were given the truth. The Jews were the people who were given the promises. And so they spoke to those people, believing that they would receive that word first, because Jesus is, after all, first a Jewish Messiah, and then he is the Messiah of the world. He didn't ignore that the people of God from Abraham onward are his own people, so that's where they went. It makes sense. So that's what they explained to them, and then they said this. But since you rejected it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. Now, he's really poking them. He's using a little bit of sarcasm. He's really riling them up, but they're already mad to start with. Now we turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord commanded. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, also one of the promises, one of the prophecies, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. They're fulfilling it. Look at verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of God, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So here's the pattern. They go to the known, and from the known they go to the unknown or the less known. They're building bridges of contextualizing the gospel. They're going where it would be understood because the Jews know the Old Testament. And then they're going to the Greeks, those who were seeking among them. And then what we're going to discover, it's spilling out because the Greeks know other Greeks who aren't coming with them and know other Romans or pagans, Gentiles who aren't coming with them, but they have a burden for them and they start reaching out to them and you begin to see it's wave after wave after wave after wave. And the point is, you go to the early adopters. You follow the pathways that God opens. And there are people who will be both curious to your message, who are willing to introduce you to others within their circles. They themselves might not believe, but they will know people that you should speak to. It's a remarkable thing in missions. Is that sometimes the person that you first meet that, you, that gives you a welcome, invites you in and introduces you to other people, doesn't really want the gospel for themselves, but they know four other people for whom the gospel would be really good. They say no and open the doorway for other people. It's a remarkable thing within the sharing of missions. And it's actually called, these people are what would be called, the, would be called the gatekeepers or people of peace. In the Tipping Point, a, a, new, a, a book that's out in our day, it's a little dated now, but the author says that there are people on this planet called mavens. You probably met them. They have an experience and they text 400 of their closest friends that they all should have the same experience. Do you know those kind of people? 
They are just those who have great experiences, whether they've eaten somewhere or they've found a new pair of shoes or there's a sale on somewhere and suddenly everybody in their group has to know it. And it creates social phenomena. Really, it's the whole process of Facebook and Twitter and all of the rest way back in the New Testament times. People just had to tell other people what was so great. Do you know there was one of these moments that was on Amazon? Did you know it recently? There's something that's called Instant Pot. Do you, do you know the Instant Pot? It's a Canadian invention. It's a pressure cooker, but it's electric. Uh, it's, a, it's a great gizmo. Sells normally for about 200 bucks, and it was on sale for $100. But because so many people had bought it and told all of their friends, the Canadian company sold 250,000 units in one day. Social movement. The gospel moves socially. Why? Because we're witnesses. It worked in you and you know 40 people that you tell. It worked in me and they look at you and go, we believe you and they join the movement. Now, does it always happen that way? Of course not. We're going to find that it is not something that you can predict and that you can personally always engineer. But what we're seeing is it happened in the island of Cyprus and it's happening now in the places that Paul and Barnabas are going. So they learn to share the gospel contextually. That would be the fourth point that's up on the, on the, on the uh, screen there in chapter 13, 46 to 49. They were experimenting. They were trying first with synagogues and then they were going off to the Jewish community and they were going where, where, the, pardon me, where the Gentile community was taking them and they were finding people responding. And they stayed with those who were responding. And we see that the church is increasingly in Asia Minor becoming a Gentile church and not a Jewish church only. It's the movement of missions from known to unknown. And they're experimenting. They're learning as they go, where they start, who they appeal to, how they find God at work. And then they would gather the believers. In chapter 14, if we skip ahead into that next chapter in verse 21, it says they preached the good news in that city and they, wore, they won a large number of disciples. And then they returned again to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, not the one that they came from, but this Antioch, Pisidia in Asia Minor, and strengthened the disciples, encouraged them to remain true to the faith, they told them, we're going to go through many hardships and enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in every church. See, already they've got gatherings, clusters, little groups called churches, people who gather together for the sake of learning, growing, maturing, developing. And they need leadership. So Paul and Barnabas begin to do that. But what we also see is a pattern that they go from place to place to place. They go where the gospel is received and then they go to the next place where it's being received. And the point that I'm saying to you is that there is a pattern where you go where the gospel is welcomed. And when it's received, you go to the next place and it's repeated and it's repeated like peeling an onion, layers, or ripples on a lake. It's, it's going out and further saturating. So let me tell you the story of how this works in one of our missionary families. On the screen is, is uh, this lovely lady on my right, uh, your left. Her name is Dr. San Nepp. What you don't know about Dr. Nepp is that three times she was to be executed by Khmer Rouge in her home country of Cambodia. Three times. Three times she was miraculously delivered and her life was spared. Uh, she is now married to Utpek. He watched his family die of starvation in the jungles because anyone who wore glasses 
anyone who looked intelligent, anyone who had a, a place of influence and prominence and education was slaughtered on the killing fields of Cambodia. So she escaped, she meets her husband, they travel via Paris to Canada, they live here for five years, they become Canadian citizens, and Dr. Sadnap is a dentist teaching at a major university in Cambodia. They become Canadian citizens, and they cannot, they cannot get away from the burden of their heart to reach more of Cambodia for Jesus. So they come to our mission, they say, would you send us? And we said, Yes, of course, you're going back to your own people, you have a burden for your people, you have a plan. Yes, what are you going to do? She said, well, I have a full-time job. I, I, I wanna go back to Cambodia, but I can't do all my work by myself. Would you put some support behind this? And we said, yes, we'll do that, what do you need? And we worked out the details and we deployed her to Cambodia. Now, seven years later, here are the statistics. She has decided that the poor and marginalized who were overlooked and underserved in Cambodia need the gospel. And they also need good dental care. So she goes to villages and I was out with her and watched extractions and dental fillings and things being done in, under a banana tree in a little village in, in Cambodia outside of Kampong Chong. Seven years later, and I stood with her in front of the governor of the province, and she gave these statistics. I have done 8,400 medical procedures on poor people. Over seven years, do the math, 1,200 procedures every year. She has a full-time job, she's teaching students. So she's doing this on weekends and in vacation. 8,400 procedures. Of those 8,400 procedures, and you'll see this on your right-hand side, she gathers people after they've had their dental work and she says, I want you to know what motivates me. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He changed my life. He came into this world for you. And these people are praying with her to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Cambodia, Buddhist heartland, over 400 people have come to know Jesus Christ in seven years. I know it's great. She has started four churches among them, and she's built two buildings in seven years. Pretty exciting, wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Amen. She has a heart for the lost, and she's figured out how to do it. She's experimenting. Well, not with people, but with the process of sharing the gospel, and she's seeing individuals one. And she's taught 350 dental students, and she's won 50 of them to Jesus Christ and they join her on her weekends and vacations to care for poor people. What I'm saying is you've gotta figure out how it is you want to be a witness to Christ and, and share what it is God's given you and you need to anticipate along with God's power some resistance. All through these chapters, two things happen. People respond and there's this tremendous excitement as the gospel goes forward. But here's what I'm here to tell you along with the excitement, and then God does some miraculous things. You know, there's this Elymas, a sorcerer in Cyprus, and he's really jealous because Barnabas has an in with a governor, and this guy feels threatened, and he begins to try and spoil and stop Barnabas and Paul having any influence in the governor's life. And Barnabas, or Paul has had enough and says to him, blindness on you. You're gonna be blind to the end of the day. Immediately he was blind and had to be led by the hand. Everybody who saw that went, wow, 
the power of Jesus is greater than the power of this magician. And the gospel went forward. Here's my question. Can you anticipate that God is going to do that in Guelph when you are sharing the gospel of Christ with your friends? Because I don't know about you, I kind of like that power. I kind of like to go, shazam! You can't deny it. I've been a pastor for 35 years. I haven't yet had a shazam moment. Maybe it's coming. Why am I saying this to you? Why, why am I teasing a bit this way? Because there was only one burning bush. There was only one axe head that floated. There was only one blind man, Elemis, that was blinded for the day. There was many people who were sick that were healed. But the point that I'm saying to you is that while the gospel of Jesus Christ is accompanied by power and signs and wonders, you cannot predict them and you cannot depend on them. What you depend upon is the gospel of Jesus Christ doing its work through the agency of the Holy Spirit. But I tell you what you can count on is this, is that when the gospel of Christ displaces the influence and power of broken people, they will come against you. Because here's the principle. Some people are benefiting from the brokenness of the world as it is. And when the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks shackles, sets individuals free, moves them from lost to found, from, from darkness to light, and suddenly the person who is finding significance in the brokenness of the way things are sees their whole structure and influence change, they're not going to be very happy. So, for example, when Paul and Barnabas are in a synagogue and suddenly all of the synagogue is going, whoo there's nobody like Pastor Barnabas, well, the local rabbi is not going to be too happy. He's going to wrestle with something called what? Jealousy. And so what will he have to do to try and level the field? Well, you know, Barnabas isn't everything you think he is. Attack, undermine. And we see it escalating where the social influence of individuals is greater, the attack is equal to the level of their influence. They will do what they can with what they have to maintain the position they don't want to lose. And they will make themselves the enemies of the gospel if it's good for their own social credit. And we see that through these chapters. We see it reach a level in chapter 14 where Paul is actually stoned and left outside the city for dead. And then miraculously, he's just got a bad concussion and he's left and they don't finish the job and he dusts himself off when everybody leaves, wakes up from his concussion coma and walks back to the city and people are amazed that God has spared his life as is he. And what happens, he just then says, you need to know this is what it's like with the gospel because it's going to create this tension. And sometimes we will find that as God's people. And this is why Canadians have a challenge with this issue. Because you know what we like to be? We like to be nice. And you know how we define nice? We don't make any waves. We don't create that tension. So if we preach the gospel and it's creating all of this tension, we will do what? We will tend to back up and try and make things smooth and make things easy when in the gospel we see it's a moment of crossroads and conflict. 
And so when we see that happen, what do we in the church say? They must have been too aggressive with the gospel. They did something wrong. They didn't do anything wrong. It's a spiritual war. The gospel is being proclaimed and this confrontation is occurring. So as they've gone all the way through and they've had all of these experiences and we see the gospel advancing, human jealousy around, the power of God demonstrated, they come to a conclusion that they can't leave the things the way they are. And so they take a journey back through all the places that they've been. They see the gatherings just like ours. They say, you need some leadership and they appoint some. Why didn't they do that right at the beginning? What do you think? It's logical. There weren't any leaders identified. They come back and they discover, oh, people have taken up responsibility and the onus, and they begin to do the little referencing and they find who are the people who are really doing this, who have the gifting, who have the ability, who have the spiritual maturity, and they set them apart in leadership structure. And the church is emerging and it's really a sort of loose, not highly organized and orchestrated process. They're learning how to be the church of God in the context where they found their faith. We've got one of those examples of the essentialness of leader that I, leadership that I just want to close with and then make some applications. The next picture is of Ezekiel Mantic. He's on uh, my right, your left. Ezekiel Mantic came to know Jesus Christ in prison. He deserved to be there because he was selling drugs to kids in his community. He would say he was a bad guy and he didn't deserve mercy, he deserved justice and he got justice. But it was Christians in his community that gave him mercy because they went to jail and shared with him and prayed with him and he responded to Jesus Christ, it changed his life. He got out of jail and he said to the leaders in his community, what should I do? And they said, you've got aptitude and ability, you should go to seminary. So he went to the seminary and got some training, he became a pastor, married a wife and had a child and led a church. Then he planted a church. And remember how he was saying at the very beginning, he just had this burden? Because he lives in Indonesia and he has a burden for all of the millions of Muslim people in his country who don't know Jesus. So he went to the leaders and he said, I have a burden, I'd like to go to Central Java. And they said, well, there's a team we know of, go and join them. So he went and joined them 12 years ago. And they began to share their faith. They did some experimenting, they learned some tools, 12 years later, this is the result. 60,000 Muslim background people have come to Jesus. 60,000. 30,000 of them have been baptized. There are 12,000 groups now operating. This is what we call a people movement, disciple-making movement. And they've said to us, we need to raise the level of knowledge of our leaders. Do you have any program? We have a program called Leaders Four. And so we're now taking churches and leaders, giving them our material, and we're taking them to Manado and Puerto Central Java, and we're doing leaders for training and development of leaders in Central Java. Because they brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who really needed it. Is there opposition? Lots. How are they going about it? Well, their groups are so small, only less than 20 people, just like MCs here. And because they're not tightly connected, it's not a movement that Muslim leaders in that area are aware of or feel threatened by. But it's changing the future of Java. In this passage of scripture, as we conclude, I have several applications I want to ask you. 
The first one is, do you know that you have a place to play in the advancement of the kingdom? Do you know that God wants you to serve him? Do you know that God is ready for you to join him? And he actually asks you in prayer to say to him, to tell him, I want to join your mission. I want to be on mission with you right where I am, right where God has called me. Is there a role for me? I tell you, if you say this to the leaders of this congregation, you'll be engaged in opportunities in a tremendous, exciting way. Uh, They'll give you training and they'll give you support. And they'd love to see you engage in the experiment. But my question is, are you thinking that you need God to talk to you before you're willing to serve him? Because I'm saying to you, if you want to serve him, get involved now. Serve him with what you have and your gifts now. Do not wait for the Hollywood sign. Serve him where you're at now because it's far more likely that God will speak to you as he did Paul and Barnabas in the routine and busyness of what they were doing. And so there's an opportunity for you at the end of the service to come forward and to pray. Maybe one of your prayers needs to be, I've been avoiding this. It might honestly be, I'm afraid of this. It might well be, I've not engaged because I don't know what God's going to ask of me. But I know this morning I cannot put God off any longer. I need to say to him, anytime, any place, I'm yours. Perhaps an application this morning, you've actually had a desire deep within your heart to be one of those people that goes from the known to the unknown. And God is stirred in your life for a while and you just haven't acknowledged it. And you need to acknowledge it today. Maybe it is to be engaged in something that we normally call missions. To leave the comfortable and the known and to go to a place where you need to learn a new language, new customs and experiment with bringing the gospel of Jesus to a group of people that do not know him yet. And perhaps this morning, thirdly, I'd like to say that you need to be involved in a missional community so that you can be praying for the admission advancement of this church. Both what you're engaged in doing in the community and also as you've known in this church that they're looking for the next pastor to come and join them that would lead missional communities as an enterprise of reaching more and more of Guelph for Christ. Because we say to ourselves this and we believe it, in Guelph as it is in heaven. Well, what did heaven do? sent us Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He paid the price and sent us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. It's his word, not mine. It's his pattern, not mine. And he asks you to join him so that people who do not know Jesus yet will have a chance to see the gospel at work in you and hear the gospel through you so they can be part of God's forever family. Father, thank you so much for an opportunity of responding to your word today, of listening to how it is that you worked in Paul and Barnabas and realize that it's a pattern of how it is that you work in us in Guelph and the ends of the earth. Would you encourage us today to consider the role that we can play, the people that we can influence, the opportunities that you've given? so that we would not let another day go by without talking with you about what you want done and the role that we can play in it.
In the name of Jesus, I ask.